Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. I think that once you start to feel that you are just ticking boxes in your life and you're not remembering anything, that's a sign that you're living those moments too quickly and a way of measuring the fact that you're going back to similar moments at the right speed is that you begin to remember things. And I feel like my memory is so much more rich and nuanced and textured and and present. It's something I carry around with me now in a way that I think I just wasn't before. I was skimming the surface of my life and nothing was sticking. It was just glancing off me. Hello and welcome to the Not Perfect podcast with me, your host, Poppy Jamie, recovering perfectionist and founder of mental wellness app, Happy Not Perfect. This show is about hitting pause while we explore the mind, soul, science, real life experiences, and that confusing thing called happiness. Life throws curveballs, and I believe the greatest healing comes from honest conversation. I'll be interviewing thought leaders, change agents, scientists, and mystics for their insights and perspectives. I hope you'll join me on the journey. In today's show, we're speaking to Carl Honoré, who is a TED speaker and international best-selling author four times over. His book, In Praise of Slow, Challenging the Cult of Speed, kicked off the slow movement in 2004. And since then, he's written The Slow Fix, Work Smarter and Live Better in a Fast World, among others. In this episode, we talk about slowing down, something I need massive help with. Let's crack into the interview. What is your favorite quote at the moment? My favorite quote at the moment is, you're never too old to set a new goal or dream a new dream, which comes from C.S. Lewis, the writer, who wrote the Chronicles of Narnia in his 50s and found the love of his life shortly thereafter. Gosh, that's so reassuring. I love that. (laughs) Um, What's the most profound or silly life lesson you've been reminded or learned recently? I was reminded yesterday that people can look like everything is fine on the surface, but but, but beneath the surface, things can be really, really wrong. Mm. That we're all, or many of us are that duck syndrome, you know, paddling frantically below the surface, <laughs> crisis below the waterline, but looking serene and tranquil above it. Oh my God, I feel like that's been my life for the last eight <laughs> months. <laughs> and, and how do you define happiness? Waking up in the morning and thinking, yes, another day. Oh, that's so lovely. Okay, so, I mean, you have now had four, four best-selling books. My new book is just out, so fourth. Fourth, which I'm very excited about your new book, and we're going to touch upon that in this interview. Um, But you exploded with this simple but yet incredibly profound concept of the slow revolution. At what point did you wake up and just think, I need to change the speed of my life? Well, I think we all need a wake-up call when we get stuck in fast-forward and to realize that 
all of the speed is doing us harm. And I think a lot of people find that wake up call <laughs> comes in the form of an illness. You know, the body just gives up one day or maybe a relationship goes up in smoke. And my wake up call came when I started reading bedtime stories to my son. And in those days, I just couldn't slow down. So I'd go into his bedroom at the end of the day and speed read Snow White. <laughs> and I became an expert in what I call the multiple page turn technique, which any, <laughs> any, any parent out there, I'm sure will recognize it. And will also realize it never works, right? And this really horrendous state of affairs went on for quite a while until I caught myself flirting with buying a book I'd heard about called The One Minute Bedtime Stories, Snow White in 60 Seconds, <laughs> and catching myself and thinking, yes, I need that now. Drone delivery, Amazon. And then second thought was, whoa, has it really come to this in my... Really in such a hurry, I'm prepared to fob off my little boy with a sound bite instead of a story at the end of the day. And that was the moment where I just thought it was a moment of searing epiphany, like an out-of-body experience. You see yourself in sharp relief from the side. And I just thought, whoa, this is ugly, unedifying and wrong. I need I need I'm going too fast in every moment of my life. And that was the that was the detonating moment. We have, I feel, all of us become addicted to going faster. And why do you think that is the case? I think there are lots of reasons. Uh, I mean, one is that speed is fun. It's sexy. It's an adrenaline rush. You know, we get a mm. we get a thrill from going fast. There's a kind mm. of chemical boost that we get from getting into fast forward. But then the whole culture around it is pushing us towards doing more and more things faster and faster. What you think of the workplace, you know, tighter deadlines, heavier workloads, or the way new technology has come into our lives allowing us to do everything at the speed of software and conditioning us to expect everything to happen at the swipe of a screen. So you put those things together with the fact that at the same time, we now live in this extraordinary turbo consumer culture where the whole world has become a smorgasbord of things to do and experience and consume. And we just want to have it all, right? That's a natural human instinct. But her having it all means hurrying it all. So I think when you put yeah. all of those things together, you can understand why we find ourselves in roadrunner mode, you know, even when it's up to us how fast we go, we go too fast because we're just stuck in turbo. We've lost the art of slowing down. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact? You can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. And when do you think this changed? Because I think we romanticize a lot about the 40s or the 50s. But, you know, through your research, at what point have you really noticed, I suppose, this societal shift of being addicted to faster is better? I, what I found most fascinating about the research was when you dig back into really distant history, you find that people were still feeling rushed. You can go back as far as ancient Rome, you know, with sundials. And mm -hmm. as soon as people started measuring and dicing up time with a sundial, they started having schedules and therefore hurrying. <laughs> so you even hear people complaining about their lives being 
pushed too fast back in you know 2000 years ago. But the real big surges have happened in the modern era. So I think with the Industrial Revolution, machines, the whole time is money ethos that first took hold in factories, but then seeped out into every corner of our lives. I think that was the first big surge of acceleration. And then in the last sort of 15 years with new technology, uh, cell phones, social media, that has ratcheted everything up, I think, another few notches. So now everything can happen instantly. And the flip side of that is we almost expect it to happen instantly. And we find mm. ourselves just roaring with rage when something takes a half a second longer to download or to happen than we're expecting. And it's just we've locked ourselves into this dash to a finish line that we never, ever reach. Right. What is the, yeah. What what's is the, the point? Fin- yes. What's <laughs> the, what's the point? And it's so, it's ridiculous. How do you um, kind of, I suppose, unpack happiness and time and that relationship? Well, people often say, I can't afford to slow down because my life will pass me by, right? And I think that's completely the wrong way to think about it. Life is what's happening right here, right now. And the only way to live it fully and to derive the most happiness from it is to be in that moment, right? To be in that moment at the right speed. That's, That's what this whole slow revolution is about. It's not about doing everything slowly or everything must be slow motion. I mean, I'm not a an extremist or a fundamentalist of slowness. I I love speed, right? Faster Mm. is often better. I'm naturally a fast person. I'm in Taipei. I play fast sports. I live in London, right? I love the volcanic energy of this city. I I love speed. Faster is often the way to go, but not always, right? That's the key here. So this slow culture quake or slow ethos is about choosing the right speed. So coming back to this idea of your life passing you by, I think if you're approaching each moment thinking, how do I do this thing or live this moment, not as fast as possible, but as well as possible. As well as possible. That's the key shift there. That's the the, the switch that needs to flick. And once you flick that switch, you realize that everything rotates sharply to the right, you know, or the left, so that you suddenly find yourself living moments instead of rushing through them. And and happier, I think. That's one thing I've noticed myself, having reconnected with my inner tortoise. You know, I used to do everything fast. Every moment of my day was a race against the clock. And then when I began to reset and reboot, I came back to the same life, doing the same work and so on, but just with a different spirit, arriving at each moment thinking, how can I get the most out of this moment rather than how can I get through it fastest? My happiness went from you know, down near the floor to soaring up near the top of the chart, right? Because I think I began to live my life instead of accelerate it. And what questions did you ask yourself to start to understand in what places in your life you wanted to slow down? Because I think that's often the hardest part. We don't know which parts we value the most. I think one good metric or yardstick for working out if you're going too fast through a moment is memory, right? Milan Kundera, the novelist, uh, said that there's an intimate bond between slowness and memory. And I think a lot of us who are caught in that fast-forward life realize that one of the things that we sacrifice in the altar of speed is remember, we don't remember stuff. Nothing sticks because you're going through so fast, you're juggling five things at once. So you get to the end of the week or the end of the month or even the end of the year and you look back and think, wow, that was July? (laughs) I can't even remember what I had for lunch two days ago. (laughs) Or I, I read a book, but I don't remember anything about, you know. And I think that once you start to feel that you are just ticking boxes in your life and you're not remembering anything, that's a sign that you're living those moments too quickly. And a way of measuring the fact that you're going back to similar moments at the right speed is that you begin to remember things. And I feel like my memory is so much more rich and nuanced and textured and 
and present. It's something I carry around with me now in a way that I think I just wasn't before. I was skimming the surface of my life and nothing was sticking. It was just glancing off me, water off a duck's back. And so I think for our, you know, I mean, I'm 28 and bizarrely birthdays, I think, can be a really scary time for people. I think I often hear, I hate New Year's Eve. I hate birthdays because they're a marker of time. And I think it just shows us how almost terrified we are of about time. We are. I think we've got a deeply neurotic relationship with time. And in a sense, it goes back to this Benjamin Franklin notion of time is money. That's where it comes from 250 years ago. And I think what that's done is it's seeped into our minds and created this approach to life where we think, well, how do I get the best value or out of my time is just to go faster. So we go faster and faster and faster. And we regard time as a limited resource or a precious resource that's constantly running away from us and draining away. And this creates a kind of deadline mentality. So you feel yeah. like... If you haven't done but this by 25 I, yeah. or, or 30 or 35, then it's just everything is downhill after that and you've missed the boat. Yeah. You've missed the deadlines and you're a failure, right? Which is preposterous. It makes no sense, especially in a world where we're living longer, better than ever before. You know, you've at 25 or 28, you've got decades of incredible living ahead of you. Mm. Better living in some ways because some things get better as we get older, which is one of the things I look at in my new book. So this idea that we're on a clock that somehow the best years of your life are till 30 and you've got to, within that narrow window, find your perfect life partner, nail right. your career, right. visit all those places you've heard about on Instagram, eat all the best food, <laughs> because from 30 on, it's just one big slither downhill, right? And that's sort of the way I think a lot of us feel. I felt like that in my 30s. Mm. And, and now that I'm, you know, I'm 51 now. And I've spent two years researching and thinking about what aging is and how it changes us. And I have such a, a different view now. I had a horrifically ageist view in my 20s. I just didn't even want to think about being even 35, right? Yeah. It just seemed like that was the end. And I really felt this awful sense of time running away from me. And I wasn't running fast enough to get it all done because the best years of my life were going to end in my early 30s somewhere, right? I was going to fall off a cliff. I just wish now, looking back, that... I'd written this book 25 years ago, right? Because I would have saved myself so much unnecessary and exactly. toxic angst, worry, shame, guilt, all those awful it's things true. that we feel about aging, which are so, so wrong, misplaced and radioactive. I feel you mean you were the first person to be vocal about saying, yo, 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 there's this concept out there as time. It's a huge factor in the rise of our anxiety and our worry, but let's re-look at it. How do we practice? Because I think it takes great strength for a person to consistently reassure them that there's many different understandings of time. Are there any routines or practices that you can mm. share with us? Well, one has to do with how we tell time or monitor it. I, for instance, no longer wear a watch. And I, my two favorite words are airplane mode, right? So I have, I have a mobile phone, but it's switched off most of the time. And I, and I don't keep it in my line of view. So I tend not to have the clock visibly ticking in front of me. And there's a lot of science that shows that when you see a clock, just seeing it or hearing it can make you feel more anxious about the passing of time. Really? And in fact, I saw research recently saying that women, when they hear a clock ticking, begin to think and worry more about having children. So, I mean, it's, really? these things are so hardwired in there. It's wow. just it's just amazing. So what I find as a good su suggestion or starting point for rewiring or recasting our relationship with time is just 
take back control of the clock itself, the physical artifact, you know, put put that phone in your pocket, take a watch off. If you're somebody who feels the need constantly to have the time, book a couple of hours on Sunday to be without a clock face, right? Just sort of try and build up a more fluid, less checking all the time relationship with with the clock. And I, I'm very punctual. I'm always on time. But I no longer worry about the minutes and seconds passing. I used to be somebody always looking at my watch and thinking, oh, look, three minutes to two. What can I do? Or, oh, I thought it was five to two and I've lost, you know, I never have those thoughts anymore. But it took it took time. You don't just change that chip in your head overnight. I mean, this is one of the ironies of the moment is that we're all so impatient. We even want to slow down fast, right? And you can't. It's a we are kind of addicted. So there's a process, right? It's, you're going to have withdrawal symptoms. You're going to have to take baby steps. You're going to have a couple steps forward with your slowing down and changing your relationship with time. One step back, right? But just keep moving forward and do experiments. I think it's useful to run little pilot projects in your own life. Say this week, for instance, I will, I don't know, I'll stop working every day at six, no matter what. And just at the end of the week, have a meeting with yourself and say, how did that work? What did it feel like? What did it, did it harm my work in any way? Did it enhance it? Do, do I feel better? Was I less worried in the evening about the time? You know, and then tweak, go back the next week and do more of what worked and less of what didn't. And, and just work out your own formula, your own recipe for getting through this. I think we all know that kind of doing less makes you more productive. I mean, mm, you so. <laughs> probably know much more about the research studies around that. Are there any that particularly stand out? Well, I mean... There's just such a library of research and it's coming out all the time that I'm certainly on the multitasking side. There's a huge body of research now that shows that the less is more, right? That the human brain, and this includes the female brain, I'm afraid, yeah. cannot multitask. We simply cannot do it. Mm. When you're multitasking, what you're doing is juggling. You're toggling back and forth between activities. So activity one gets, I don't know, 10 seconds and then back to activity two gets 15 and then Arr! and it sounds and seems productive and dynamic and energetic and modern, it's actually a waste of time because the studies show pretty clearly that if you take a multitasker and put them alongside a monotasker, somebody who as much as possible focuses on one thing at a time, mm. the multitasker will take up to twice as long and make up to twice as many mistakes, right? So this is what I think of as the delicious paradox of slow is that you take the slow road, route it's often not that slow. It's actually often faster than the fast route, wow. right? Or the old the old military adage, you know, slow is wow. smooth, smooth is fast. And the science is really clear on that, which is why in a lot of workplaces, they're now looking for ways to damp down or roll back the multitasking juggernaut because people are making too many mistakes. They're burning out. They can't focus. They can't listen. And it, you know, so, so that's, there's a big, big solid research body there telling us one clear message, which is, you know, focus. Do fewer things, but do them well. So what do you think when you hear about this, I think, growing generation of multi-hyphen taskers where many friends I know and um, in their 20s have the side hustle and we're also, there's this, you know, this term coined as millennial burnout. Mm. What do you think when you're seeing this? I think two things. I think on a macro level, this is a difficult time to be making your way in the world and starting out work-wise just because of the rules of the game have shifted and they're stacked in many ways against people coming up through their late teens and, and 20s. So I, I think that's a, a tough thing and that's something we need to try and unpack and make better together. But what I, when I see, and I do a lot of work, you know, and with that, that, people in their 20s and, and I do a lot of work in school, so I'm exposed to teenagers a lot. 
I think that that generation is waking up now to the folly of these excesses, right? I mean, I, I don't buy into this pessimistic narrative that, that that's a lost generation who can only ever look at screens and mm-hmm. can't. Because human beings, we're all, you know, evolution, we have not experienced a great leap forward in evolution, right? A, a, a child born today in New York City or London is going to have the same brain as a child born before Facebook, right? right? What's different is the world they're growing up in. But because they're born with the same brain, they're born with the same limits, needs, desires. And and that means that they, every generation, is, young, old, middle-aged, whatever, is craving the same things. We're craving connection. connection. We're craving meaning. We're craving sleep, <laughs> rest. Yeah. We're, craving, we're, we're, right. we're craving quality, pleasure. All of the stuff that's just... Every generation has wanted that. And each generation at the moment is facing its own set of unique obstacles to get there. But I, I feel as a natural born optimist that, that we, you know, we, we will get there. And I look at that younger generation you're talking about, and I see so many things shifting there. You know, if, just think, for instance, how if you talk to human resource people around the world, they'll talk about the 20-something generation being quite different in what the way the things they're asking for when they come in to interview or to start at a company. They'll, they look at the older generation and say, you know what? I don't really want to work 120 hours a week and totally. sacrifice my health, soul, mm-hmm. relationship mm-hmm. on the altar of what? A big pension pot and maybe a heart attack at 59? Yeah. You know? They're thinking, I want to go home and give my newborn baby a bath at the end of the day, right? And yeah. then that's men asking for that as well. Men yeah. that my generation would never have dared to do that, right? So these things are these are tectonic shifts. They take time, but they are happening out there in a, in a profound, hopeful, and seismic way. And then around the technology... You see that, that, you know, that supposedly the digital natives don't know when to switch. But they're coming up with all kinds of ways of dealing with this and innovative fun. You presumably have heard of stacking. This yeah. Thing. Yeah. You know, the stacking thing of going out and piling the phone up in the middle of the table. There's some research came out recently showing that when two people are having a conversation, it could be, uh, you know, romantic partners, parent, child, two friends. If a phone is visible, it, it doesn't need to ring or vibrate or illuminate just visible those two people keep the conversation on a more superficial level really yeah yeah because part of their brain and bandwidth is thinking there's a phone there i wonder what's happening on my inbox should i be looking should i not am i thinking about my phone am i listening simple win just take that phone and put it in a pocket or your it bag or whatever it is right your you know your cycling case or whatever right just get it out of your sight line easy free instant win right because that change will change the timber the the depth, the, the quality, the, the nature of the conversation you have with that other person. Um, and I think that is a really important point to focus um, in on. And uh, you touch upon this um, in your books. But how do you think time is affecting relationships? Well, time and speed, I think that whole virus of hurry has infected our relationships as well. So, you know, we live in a world now with 329 friends on Facebook. But when was the last time you went and spent a whole afternoon in the park with one of those people just mm. hanging out, right, in person? Uh, the whole dating app, swipe right, swipe left, Tinder right. culture, which I think has in some ways amped up and and It's not cheapened. very romantic. It's a transaction. Tinder mm. is transactional. And, you know, that will have a role for all of us or many of us at certain points in our lives. And I, I'm not some... Victorian <laughs> disapproving, you know, preacher here to say that people shouldn't have, you know, one night stand. You know, people have always had, you know, quick sex and sex right. that probably didn't have. But it just feels like that whole 
if you look at a Venn diagram of our romantic relationships, yeah. I just feel that the dating app, fast, superficial, lacking in tenderness sex has expanded like the Borg, mm. you know, to occupy way too much space, which I think explains why so many people feel disconnected. You know, you talk to um, women and men and, and they'll Lon say... Yeah, loneliness is it's now in epidemic levels in a younger demographic yeah. and it was usually associated with, with older ones. So we have this scenario where people are more connected electronically than ever before, but more lonely and disconnected in, in a real meaningful way. What are your thoughts on um, this idea that rushing actually makes us more emotionally vulnerable? Because mm. we're so desperate to have a connection, so maybe we rush into a connection without taking the time and actually then it's causing us pain and then as, as, so as a consequence it's kind of a, a spiral down because we then withdraw. withdraw. I think I think there's a lot to that. Uh, certainly in the kind of romantic sphere, I think people are rushing in and finding it not hitting the right buttons and just mm. not. And, and then what do you do? You you maybe rush in again and then you find the same thing. You rush in a third time, the fourth time. You just think, you know what? Maybe not. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and, and maybe that explains why the stats coming out recently show that this generation of whatever, 18 to 34s are having less sex than than ever before, you know? And really? Yeah, yeah. The numbers are pretty stark. Wow. And, it, and, and you think... You think you're having the more press, because of the dating app. Because it's there. It's sort of it's in your pocket. It's around the corner. But heterosexual sex, I don't know. I'm sure I can't say for other types. But um, certainly that young demographic is having less sex. And this is across much of the developed world, right? Wow. And I think Why that's... Think that well, I think that's connected to this whole racing through your life instead of living it scenario. Mm. You know, the lack of tenderness, the lack of mm. meaning, the lack of real connection. What do you feel that you struggle most with in life and how do you overcome challenges? I suppose because my work resonates quite widely, I get offered a lot of mm. things that, you know, 20 years ago, I would have probably cut off one of my limbs to do any one of them. But then I can't say yes to everything because I become the opposite of what I'm preaching. Right. So it's that old thing of having to say no. And, you know, I used to find that really tough. Uh, but I've, I've, I think I've pretty much conquered it now. I, my first book isn't called In Praise of Slow, at least in um, outside the US. In the US, it's In Praise of Slowness. But I often think it could have been called In Praise of No, because a big part of slowing down, of course, is being able to, to say no and to grapple with FOMO, right, which is, of course, one of the great curses of the modern era. And I still feel a little bit of that FOMO. I mean, at the moment, I'm trying to put together a couple of trips for the few months hence. And there's a couple of things I would love to do, and I just cannot get them in. I could shoehorn them into the schedule, but I just, it would, I would end up traveling in a way that I don't like to travel. So I'm, I'm just, I'm just saying no. And how do you, how do you yeah. make up your mind? How do you say no? I struggle with that. Yeah, I'm a yes girl. I guess I, I, yes, I was a yes man for so long, <laughs> um, but now I'm, now I'm all about no. Well, I love that quote from Warren Buffett, which I often say to myself. He, he the famous investor, mm. right? He said once. Um, the, the difference between successful people and very successful people is that very successful people say no to almost everything. Mm. So that's one of my kind of go-to quotes when I find myself presented with this array of things I love to do. I, I also make a point of going back. This is something coming back to how we think about time and perspective over the passing of the months and years and so on. Uh, as well as a to-do list and so on, I, I like to keep a not-to-do list. So things, oh. that, things that I say no to, I keep them on a list. Because in the moment, FOMO kicks in and you think, oh, no, if I say no to this, 
the, the sky is going to fall in, right? I'll never hear from this client again. I'm going to feel awful a week from now, or I'm going to. It's 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 the worst case scenario, right? I think we kind of catastrophize saying no, right? We catastrophize so many things, but I think saying no is near the top of that list. Having a not to do list means that six weeks later or six months later, you look back and you think that was a thing that I thought would bring the world to an end if I said no, and you think. Actually, I can't even remember why I wanted to do that. It, it mm. clearly wasn't that. Imp- I'd forgotten completely about it. The world didn't end. I'm still here. Mm. And I find that something about that space, that time, like giving time that elasticity and coming back and looking later, you realize that in the moment, you're panicking. You've lost your compass. You're making bad decisions. And that's often why we jump into things, whether it's on Tinder or in the workplace, and say yes when we ought to be saying no. And I think that's one of the things that I've over the years built up that muscle of saying, okay, I know myself that the FOMO thing will kick in. And I know in that moment, I'm probably not thinking clearly. But I know that I have a technique here, which will allow me to put some perspective in the moment to be able to say no, because I've done it before. I know kind of now that it's okay. Right? So, it's once, okay. so let's I know say by you, looking back later that it will be okay. So you do, so let's say you go, you go through an experience and you evaluate that experience. You say, actually, that was not worth it. I'm going to put that on my not to do list. So when an opportunity comes up, you kind of assess which list this falls into. Exactly. And do you actually kind of write that down? Is that a process you do on your phone or something? I do. Yeah. It's kind of like a triage moment, right? Things come in and I say, is this the to do or not to do? And I'm always putting them. And I, in the early years of doing that, I did. I kept a file on my computer. Uh, now, and then I went through a time of writing it down by hand in a little mm. book. And I, so it kind of jumps around. I never do it on my phone because I just, I find the phone the hardest thing to to say no to. So the fewer things I have on my phone, the better I find. Smart. But I just feel like if, if, and I think a lot of people fall into this, and I think trap is maybe a big word, but maybe it's the right one, that we just overload everything. Everything goes on the phone. And I noticed that so much of the... USP of new apps that come on the market. It's so often it's about, here's something you normally do in another part of your life, but we're going to put it on your phone. And somehow that's the way that they make the thing better, not by making the thing better, but just by having it on your phone. And some of those things, of course, make great sense to have on your phone. I'm not saying, I've got apps, right? And they're not all on one screen, right? I have apps over a couple of screens and maybe even two and a half. But I just think hard about what I really want to have on my phone and what should be there in a way that I didn't when I first got my iPhone, right? Way mm. back when it was the iPhone 1 or whatever. <laughs> I do love that not-to-do list. And I think, again, it goes to your point of taking time to reflect mm. on what's gone well and what's gone badly that week and why. Because I think a great quote that I often go back to, the definition of insanity is doing the same thing, expecting different results. Mm-hmm. And I think it really ties in with everything you know that you write about, this idea that... We hate our lives being this busy. We're so stressed out. Burnout is now being recognized by the World Health Organization as a medical condition, um, something that I've suffered. But yet we're not making any changes. So writing lists does seem like a practical thing to do. It is. It makes it takes something out of your head and puts it on a physical artifact in the real world. And I think there's some there's something stirring there's something powerful about that it does seem to work uh, and and even just i mean they've shown for instance studies show that when you take notes on a computer laptop versus taking notes by hand that people understand the information or remember it better if they do it by hand because by hand you know handwriting you have to slow down and process it and praise it and synthesize it in the moment. Whereas you're so fast as a type as you just go straight through you like a cheap Chinese meal, right? Just go, it's there on the screen and you don't even remember it. 
And so I, I definitely, when I write stuff down that's important, that's about reflection, I always do that by hand. We are creatures of the physical world. And I think the more things you can do that involve touch, the mm. physical senses, you know, whether it's food or, you know, having herbs in your garden or touching a, touching a friend, you know, just we're physical beings, right? And So, for example, dinner, breakfast, do you make a concerted effort to sit down with family? You've got two kids Definitely. and have... Yeah, that's one of the sort of sacred rituals in our home is breakfast every morning. We're all there together. Well, my son is now away at university, but my daughter's still there. So we have breakfast together. And then lunch, of course, people are around doing their thing. But every evening, seven o'clock, we sit down and have dinner together and, you know, no phones, no, and we just sit and chat. And just the other night, my son is back from university and it was just the two of us. And we sat mm -hmm. down at dinner at seven and we were still there chatting at 1030. Oh, that's so And nice. it was just lovely. And it was just yeah, you know, and, and those are the things you remember. You know, nobody lies in their deathbed and looks back and thinks, I wish I spent more time on Netflix. Yeah. Right? So moving the, the conversation to your latest book, mm. um, which obviously ties in totally with time um, and really focusing on age, uh, what was, I suppose, one of the most interesting things that you learned while researching that? Gosh, I learned so many interesting things because I had such a poisonous view of aging. I mean, I was a card-carrying ageist and I thought, I definitely thought, well, 30, 35, that's it. You, know, you hit a cliff and it's all done. It's game over, <laughs> right? Yeah. Uh, and then, of course, you get to those ages and you realize that there's more to this story than meets the eye, right? And through the research, I just found so many of the ageist stereotypes to be completely wrong, right? You know, where do you want to start? Happiness, right? You know, we think of Later life is depressing. Look at the words we use for older people. Sad, crotchety, cranky, mm. grumpy. But it's untrue. I mean, human beings follow what's called a U-shaped happiness curve. We start high in childhood. We fall pretty steadily before we bottom out somewhere in middle age. And then we bounce back up again. Really? Yeah. So, that, so, the, so the adults who report the highest levels of life satisfaction and happiness are the over 55. No right? way. That's amazing. It is. I had no idea. And then and the scientists have even spotted a similar... U-shaped curve in chimpanzees and orangutans, which suggests that a happiness boost in later life may even be coded into our primate genes, right? Wow. And whoever whoever told you that, right? When you're thinking, oh, the best years of my life are you know thirty and under or thirty five. This I got to be happy now because I'll not be happy later because it's so sad. Untrue, you know, just complete weapons grade nonsense. You know, creativity belongs to the young. Again, totally wrong. People can be immensely creative at any stage of life. Uh, um, and in fact, some forms of creativity rely on things that only aging can confer, like time and experience. Wisdom. You know, like these things come and or productivity. Productivity goes up in jobs that rely on social link, um, acumen or skills, which tend to improve as we age, which is most jobs. Right. Yeah. We get better at seeing the big picture, weighing multiple viewpoints, spotting details, you know, experience in the workplace can be a superpower. And, and they did a big research study looking at all the new businesses started up in the United States over a seven year period. And they concluded that founders are more likely to succeed in middle age or beyond. Yeah. I couldn't agree more. I mean, being the founder of two companies and I set them up when what, what, I was 24, 25, so many stupid mistakes. And it's not to say that you can't set up a successful company in your... Of course you know, not. Look at Mark Zuckerberg, right? Yeah. But, but the, the truth is that the media 
is obsessed with youth, obsessed. right? So, so you, you pick up magazines and it says th- 30 people to watch under 30. Yeah. Or here's a 15-year-old who just launched a <laughs> yeah. unicorn. Right. right. Eight-year-old billionaire. <laughs> yeah. exactly. What? And you think, oh, no, my time is right. You know, I, I missed that deadline 30 years ago. <laughs> when, in fact, the truth is when you drill down into the numbers, a very different story. It's a, it's a hopeful, optimistic story about aging, which is that, sure, something's changed that, you know, there are downsides to aging. We all know that, right? I mean, I... I can't run as fast as I could have in my 20s. I've got to wear reading glasses now. And mm. I don't like either of those things. But the truth is that if you stop obsessing about the downsides of aging, which are actually f- fewer now because we're so much better at aging made, than we've ever been before. Yeah, and we're just, it's just made up fear. If you, if you stop obsessing about the downsides, you realize that many things stay the same as you grow older, right? And some even get better. And that was the thing that I just thought, wow, this is totally not what I was carrying around in my head. I had on my back this enormous rucksack of prejudice, discrimination, Mm -hmm. ageism, and it was just bumming me out, right? Mm -hmm. And I was an ostrich. I had my head in the sand. I just wasn't thinking about my own aging because I just didn't even want to think about my birthdays and stuff. And you just think, well, what a way to... It means we're just doing aging all wrong at the moment because we're... Most of us now listening to this podcast, you know, people are probably going to live well into their 80s, 90s, maybe even their hundreds, right? And yet, what are we doing with aging? We're front-loading it. So we're selling this completely absurd myth that everything has to happen. The best years are till 30, 35. And then we're going to spend five decades (laughs) feeling bad about our age. I mean, how wrong can it be? You know, it's ludicrous. Humans are so stupid. Yeah, we really are actually. Yeah. But you know, I love humans and we have lots of stupid moments and we but we can kind of turn it around. But right. I think what you're doing and I'm so and I'm so grateful and I say I'm so grateful on behalf of so many millions of people that, you know, that are uh, avid readers um, in and following your mission. It's just, oh my God, thank you for redefining and reframing and just and waking us up to the fact that we've been very conditioned and culturally um blinded in a way kind of um submerged in a narrative that really isn't supporting us yeah i always feel like with my work that's what i'm doing i'm trying to find new ways of thinking and talking about what it is to be human i suppose in in a sense and i just feel that we have the wrong language the wrong filters the wrong ideas and it's just causing us all kinds of harm. <laughs> and I feel like I'm always sort of kind of coming along and saying, well, look, let's just turn the world slightly to the left and look at it from a different angle. Mm. And if we do that, everything can change, right? Because because there's so much to be upbeat about. Right, there is. And yeah. yet there's so much gloom and, and it's our doom choice. around. And so much of it starts with us. I mean, there are a lot of structural problems and we have to roll up our sleeves and start dealing with them. Everything from you know climate to social inequality. I mean, there's a huge to-do list for humanity, of course, which is epic and, 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 and quite frightening at the same time. But there are many things that we can all do individually. You know, we all have a lot of room to maneuver, all of us. I think whatever age we are, whatever we are in our career, we've always got some levers to pull to change how we get up in the morning, with what kind of spirit, how do we see the world, how do we talk about our lives to ourselves, to other people. We all have scope to change there. And that's kind of the area I'm always trying to play in, I think. So 
to finish this interview, we like to do a quick round. And if you can finish the <laughs> sentence, which is, is ironic because we've just been talking about slow and, and now I'm introducing the quick round. <laughs> oh, God. Um, maybe we'll, maybe we'll uh, re- re- rename that after this interview. Um, but uh, I would love you to finish the sentences. Um, I relax by... Playing hockey. The person I love most in the world is... Uh, my family. The last dream I had was playing tennis against Roger Federer at Wimbledon. <laughs> Great dream. <laughs> um, I'm dying to have dinner with. I'm just going to say Wayne Gretzky. If I could do it all again, I would. Be a chef. Best piece of advice I've been given is. Always check your facts. My first thought in the morning usually is. Is it warm enough to wear shorts? <laughs> Before I go to sleep, I read fiction. What is the most common question you get asked? I think maybe, are you walking the talk? Interesting. And the most common answer is, thankfully, yes. If you really knew me, you would know. That I once won a ugliest transvestite <laughs> beauty contest in Brazil. Oh, wow. Okay. On the next podcast, that's the first question I'm going to ask you about. Thank you so much, Carl, um, for your time. How do we find you? Where do we find your books? What are your social? Um, I follow you on Instagram. I love following you on Instagram, but give it all to us. Sure. Uh, well, the easiest place is really just my website, good starting point, carlhonore.com. And then I am on all of you know Instagram, LinkedIn, Facebook, uh, Twitter uh, at carlhonore.com. And that's where I you can find me through all those channels. And I always get back to people. I love hearing from people, thoughts, ideas and stuff. Books also from my website. Just click on the books button and you can find them in all kinds of languages. 34, I think now. some So whatever you like to read in, you can find my books probably in it. Thank you so much, Carl. This Thank has been you. so brilliant. Been awesome. Fun. Thanks. That's it for today. Thank you for listening. Of course, it would be amazing and very appreciated if you wouldn't mind hitting subscribe and sharing this podcast. You can find me at Poppy Jamie on Instagram. DM me questions or any guest suggestions. I'd love to hear from you. And also, if you have a moment, download Happy Not Perfect. It's my mindfulness app that helps you manage stress, anxiety, sleep, and ultimately makes you feel happier every single day in less than five minutes. See you next time. Sending you lots of love and energy. Till then. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.